making our way through the the gospel. What we looked at last Sunday is uh, this is a continuation of that. And just to because there have been several days in between our last uh, time we gathered and this morning, I will review it just a little bit. Uh, in the beginning of Matthew nine, we read that we read of Jesus forgiving and healing a paralytic. And in that story, we learn that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And as I mentioned last week, as we uh, as we conclude that story, we see the man is leaving the house. And I said that he carried with him more than just a bet. He had a message of hope. And in fact, everyone who was there that day could tell an amazing story of how Jesus not only healed the legs of a paralytic man, but more importantly, he forgave his sins. And Jesus offered forgiveness of sins and proved that he had the authority to do so by healing the man's legs. So there's great hope here in this story that this man would no doubt tell and in the story that no doubt some of these people would even tell. And even as we read it, when we capture the essence of the of the message here, there's great hope in knowing that Jesus forgives sins. But the natural question to follow that is, How much does Jesus forgive? In other words, how far does forgiveness go? And exactly who does Jesus forgive? We know that Jesus forgave this man. I was speaking uh, with, uh, I think it was with uh, Sears on Wednesday night, and we were, I was commenting that there are only a few people in the Bible that were directly told by God, you are forgiven. We have it by faith, and it's not to discount faith, but to hear it from God's lips, you are forgiven. That's an amazing statement to hear. And he's one of the very few people in the Scriptures that are pretty much guaranteed uh, by the, the verbal Word of God, you are forgiven of your sins. It's an amazing thought. We know He was forgiven. What about the rest of us? And as Matthew continues the narrative, as it just continues to build into verse number 9, we find the answers to those exact questions. Eventually, the crowd in the house uh, left and went went their separate ways, and Jesus and the disciples were on the move again. They passed by the tax office. We see there in verse number 9, they passed by the tax office, and a man named Matthew is there sitting at his booth, at his seat, conducting business as usual. And we read that Matthew was a tax collector. Just as it is today, it was then that people really didn't care for the tax man. Does anyone actually like paying taxes to the government? I know we know that it is necessary to an extent, uh, but no one really looks forward to April 15th as a birthday, unless April 15th has to be your birthday. Uh, we, We don't like it, but as much as we don't like giving our money away to really anybody, uh, the Jews of that day, uh, especially did not care for this. They had a special hatred in their heart for tax collectors. Um, and there were a lot of reasons for this. I'd like to just take a, a little bit of time and give you a bit of a historical background to this because it'll help us to understand the significance of Matthew's brevity here. Uh, there, there are a lot of reasons for this collective despising. And for one, it was that Rome was in power in the, at the time. They were uh, they ruled over Israel and really over the known world at that time, but that meant that all of their taxes went to Caesar. And so the Jews hated the Roman occupation, which is one of the reasons why they were excited initially 
that Jesus was going to come as the Messiah because they thought he was going to kick Rome out of Israel. And when he didn't, they got they were sorely disappointed. They did, they they re, they resented the Roman occupation, and every time they paid these taxes to Rome, it was a reminder that they were not free. And so this anger, this resentment that was built up towards the system was kind of vented out at the first line there of defense, the tax collector. And then to make matters worse, these guys, particularly men like Matthew, were Jews themselves. And so in the people's minds, these men were traitors to their own country because uh, because they were uh, kind of collaborating with the Romans. Uh, There's a Jewish scholar, Alfred Edersheim, and he wrote a, a very thick book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And he was very helpful to kind of explain the sentiment of the day. Let me read a little bit, uh, just kind of overview of how he described it. Um, Jews would have no dealings with the publicans or the, or, or the, the tax collectors uh, and considered them to be unclean because they had close contact with Gentiles and because they handled pagan money. We won't get into why that, that was considered unclean, but they were considered swine. They were the, they were the, on the level of the creatures that no uh, good Jew would have any contact or any dealings with. And as such, the, the, even, they were barred from even attending the synagogue. Yet everybody had to deal with these guys. Everybody had to deal with the tax man because they rented, they represented Rome. And they collected all kinds of various taxes and made up fees and tolls and charges and surcharges and, and, and the list goes on and on. And they were considered traitors to Israel and collaborators with the enemy. They were criminals who were licensed by the state to take from anyone that they, that they wanted, anyone that they chose. They really had a license to do whatever they chose, uh, all in the name of taxation. So these are very powerful, dangerous men. Now, there were two kinds of tax collectors. I'm going to try my very best to say these two words the right way. And if you know how to say them correctly, you should tell me afterwards. But there were two different types of tax collectors, and one was called the Gabai, and then one was called the Moksha. And Gabai collected property taxes, income taxes, things like that. Moksha collected taxes on things like imports and uh, tolls and business licenses and things like that. And the problem was that these guys were able to set their own rates. They were able to tax anything and everything that they wanted. They could, um, they could really do whatever they wanted without any kind of oversight. And in the, in the process, they were allowed to uh, collect extra fees for themselves, which resulted in them amassing great fortunes to themselves. Now, there were two kinds of moksha. Uh, there were the great ones, and you can guess the other one. They were the small ones. The great moksha were those who hired other guys to go and do their work for them. And the advantage for them was that they were kind of an anonymous uh, tax collector. Nobody knew exactly who they were or what they did. But on the other hand, the small moksha collected the fees themselves. And therefore, they came into contact with people on a regular basis and provided a name and a face to go with the hatred that uh, was deserving of all taxmen. Now, all the tax collectors were despised. But of the two groups, the moksha were the most hated. And of those two, great and small, the small were the worst of the worst. And Matthew was a small or a little moksha. He was not just a tax collector. He was the worst kind 
of tax collector because we see him here doing the work himself, sitting at the tax booth, collecting the taxes, perhaps harassing travelers as they go by, looking for any excuse to stop them and to take from them whatever uh, he wanted. They could open mail. They could open private correspondence and look for reasons to tax. They could make you unpack everything. Imagine going through customs, but that being like the whole customs uh, rigmarole every time you tried to go into a a new town. Or just being pulled over on the side of the road randomly and, and having to unload everything that's in your, on your possession and, and, and maybe get a, a receipt of these are all the things that you owe taxes on, even though you might have just done that uh, a stop or two ago. This is why they hated tax men, and this was Matthew's job. And so as, as Jesus walked by here, he stops in front of Matthew and he speaks to him. And at this point, if you don't know the story, which hopefully you do because we just read it together, but if, you, if you're not familiar with the story, or if you kind of have an idea of what Jesus maybe should do, we're expecting Jesus to rebuke Matthew for his violating of God's commands to love his neighbor and to not take advantage of his Jewish brethren. We might expect Jesus to chase him off like he did with the, uh, with the, the, ta- uh, the money changers in the temple. Remember when he went in there and he made a whip and he went out and he overthrew the tables and he and he and he chased them off and he and he and he and he just caused a big disruption and he said, My house is a house of prayer, and you turned it into a den of thieves. And maybe he would do something like that and, and chase Matthew off. But he doesn't do that. As we read there, he says, Follow me. He doesn't run him off, he invites him to come with him. And no doubt the people that were within earshot of that were stunned and surprised. Did we, did we hear that correctly? Did Jesus say what I thought he said? Does he want Matthew to join him? Does he know what this guy does? He wants him to be a disciple? How outrageous. How scandalous. And without any hesitation, Matthew gets up and follows. And in one instant, Jesus' merry band of disciples uh, adds to their number one of the most hated and despised, mistrusted men around. But then the story keeps getting better because that's just verse number 9. We get into verse number 10 and we find that Jesus and His disciples are at Matthew's house now preparing for a great feast. And Mark and Luke are helpful for to fill in some of the gaps that Matthew, realizing this is Matthew's testimony he's telling us. And Matthew chooses to leave some things out and so as we read from Mark and Luke, uh, then we, we see some of these, these uh, details here. But Matthew and his new friends are at the table at his house and they are reclining around the table as was the custom of that day. And they're relaxing and waiting for the food to arrive. But as they wait, more and more people begin to show up. These are not the respectable citizens of the community. They are other tax collectors and people whom the Bible just calls sinners. Often we find these two groups of people, tax collectors and sinners, linked together throughout the Gospels. They're kind of one and the same. They are hated people. They are despised. Even in Matthew 21, you can look for, uh, for yourself later, but the phrase, uh, the, the word is, uh, the phrase is tax collectors and prostitutes. And so it's very likely that some of these sinners present at the table are prostitutes themselves. Uh, this, this could have included People like thieves, drunks, corrupt members of society, 
all just thrown into this big category of sinner. These were the people who publicly lived outside of God's laws. They lived their own way, morally, greedy, wickedly. They didn't care. Who knew? These were Matthew's friends, or at least his acquaintances, his work associates. Matthew had invited them to come to his house and meet the one who changed his life. Perhaps he wanted them to hear Jesus' teaching. Maybe in the back of his mind he was hoping that some of them would likewise receive the call to follow and they would respond. And even again, Matthew uses that word behold there for us in verse number 10 to get us to once again stop what we're, what we're doing and pay attention to what is happening at this moment. There are people sitting around a table eating a meal, but it's more than that because one of them is Jesus Christ and many more of them are the, 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 the worst of society. What we find here is that one sinner's calling to follow Jesus led to many sinners coming to Christ. And because one man decided to follow Jesus, many others were at least brought to Him and given the chance to hear Him for themselves and make up their own mind. Now we see Jesus eating with the people there in verse number, verse number uh, 10 and 11 there, telling us that he, they begin to eat. They're passing around large plates of food, talking and laughing, listening to Jesus teach, hearing Matthew's story of what just happened to him that day. We find, as we focus on Christ, that Jesus is just loving these people, just spending time with them and loving them where they are. Now think about that for a moment. The significance of that phrase that Jesus is loving these people. Because for a very few short years, Jesus walked this earth. For about 33 years, give or take, Jesus was alive on earth. And for only about three of those, He spent in active public ministry. And of those few short moments that Jesus spent on earth, He spent one night with sinners. He spent an entire evening sharing a meal with the tax collectors, with the prostitutes, with the drug dealers, with the criminals of their town. These were those barred from the synagogue, looked down on in the marketplace, ridiculed in conversation. These were the people that represented everything that is wrong with the world. And Jesus is sharing a meal with them. That's the behold that Matthew uses. Now, as you can imagine, and even as we read, not everybody is pleased with this. Not everybody is excited or at least saying, wow, look at Jesus, what a fine example He sets. Not everybody admired Jesus for His willingness to love the least of these. Because the Pharisees see what's happening in verse number 11. And they recognize a couple of things. First, they recognize Jesus as a teacher of the Scriptures. And they recognize the other people that are sitting around the table. And because they recognize the people, the identity of the people around the table, they recognize the significance of what is happening here. Because the people sitting at that table, most were the people that the Pharisees proudly thanked God that they were not like. They, they were those who lived apart from the law. They were the people uh, who lived below the standard of good and honest moral living. 
And the Pharisees were appalled. What Jesus was doing was so very much out of line. It was out of order. And they couldn't let this go. And so they called the disciples. And there's some significance there that we won't take time on. But instead of going to Jesus, they go to the disciples and they ask the question. Look there in verse number 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why, why would he do this? What, what, is his, what is his problem? Now, we need to understand a little bit about the culture of that day. In that culture, to eat with someone meant that you were on the same level with that person. You didn't share meals with people who were above you socially, economically, uh, 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 politically, however, spiritually. You did not eat with people who were above you, and you certainly did not eat with people who were beneath you. The simple act of breaking bread together was, was that which kept the classes distinguished from one another. Uh, in his dictionary of the of Jesus and the Gospels, Scott Barchi wrote this. This is rather lengthy, but it's very, very helpful for us here. Uh, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Even everyday mealtimes were highly complex events in which social values, boundaries, statuses, and hierarchies were reinforced. Anyone who challenged these rankings and boundaries would be judged to have acted dishonorably. A serious charge in cultures based on the values of honor and shame. And transgressing these customs consistently would make a person an enemy of social stability. So to the Pharisees, Jesus' eating with tax collectors and sinners was not an extreme act of love and compassion as we would see that. They saw it as Jesus' attempt to blur the lines between good and, is, and what is bad, what is uh, acceptable, what is good, and what is godly, and between what is wrong and wicked and sinful. And by eating with sinners at this table, and Jesus was, as Barchi wrote, presenting himself as an enemy of social stability. There's an old saying that goes, to share a meal is to share a life. And so Jesus, in their opinion, had become guilty of the very wickedness of those at the table simply by association. Uh, in just a few chapters in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, you call me. He said, John the Baptist came and he wouldn't eat or drink. And you said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, he said he was a party pooper. But he says, the son of man comes and he eats and drinks and you call him a drunk and a glutton. Now, Jesus wasn't drunk because we know that that's, that's forbidden in the scriptures. But how was Jesus uh, going to be uh, considered to be a drunk is because he associated with these people. He had dealings with them when, and, and they, they lumped him in with the, with the crowd. The Pharisees held themselves and everybody else to an extremely high moral standard. And a sinner was anybody who lived below that standard. In Pharisees' self-righteousness and man-made holiness, we see that they had zero compassion, no mercy, no time for sinners. By profession, they were not tax collectors. And in their own opinion, neither were they sinners. 
Jesus overhears their questions and he offers an explanation. Let's look in verses 11 through 13. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And here we find Jesus defending his actions in three different ways. We see that he uses logic, he uses scripture, and then he uses his own authority. So briefly, let me share with you uh, and explain those just a little bit. First, we read that Jesus uses logic and kind of what sounds like a proverbial uh, type wisdom. Jesus states, only the sick need a physician. That makes sense, right? If you're well, why do you go to the doctor? Uh, you only go when you're sick. And for some of us, not even then, right? We go when we're made, when the ambulance takes us there. Uh, because for doctors, uh, if everybody in the world was healthy and, well, and, and, and not never sick, and we cured all diseases, we wouldn't have a need for doctors. And Jesus is telling him here, think about it, guys. Only the sick need a physician. The well do not need the doctor. And Jesus had come as a physician to help and to heal. And only those who were sick would benefit from his coming. And next he uses the scriptures. He quotes from the prophet Hosea. Uh, and now when the Pharisees came to the disciples with their accusatory questions here, they referred to Jesus as a teacher. They did it to the, to the, to, to Jesus' disciples. They said, why does your teacher eat? So they recognized him as a teacher. They recognized him as, as an authority. And so because of that, Jesus responds to them as a teacher. And he uses this phrase before he quotes Hosea 6, 6, he uses this phrase, go and learn what this means. And this was an expression that rabbis would use to their students to basically say, guys, you still have more to learn. You need to go back and study this some more. You ever get told that? You turn in a, a paper at school or, or you, you turn in your homework assignment and the teacher says, you still don't get it. You need to go back and try again. And that's what Jesus was telling. He's telling the Pharisees. He's telling the top of the top, the cream of the crop. He's telling them, guys, you don't get it. You need to go back to the books, and you need to study the book. And he said, study what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6, I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now other translations here will use the term steadfast love instead of mercy, but the meaning is still the same. God, through the prophet Hosea, uh, was telling the people that he desired mercy from his people rather than insincere and empty sacrifices which they had been bringing to him. In that time, in Hosea's time, the people's religion had become nothing more than insincere, empty sacrifices. And their religion had just been whittled down to mere tradition and ceremony. And, and God desires true worshipers to display their love to Him through acts of mercy and not empty ceremony. But the Pharisees didn't get that. They didn't get it in Hosea's time, and they don't get it now in Jesus' time, because the Pharisees' religion was one of do's and don'ts. It was one of man-made rules and restrictions. And though they struggled and they strove to live a high, moral, godly, disciplined life, it resulted in nothing more than hollow, performance-based rituals. Jesus, on the contrary, came to show love 
and compassion. He came to show mercy to the sick and hurt him. But the Pharisees prided themselves on separating from the very people who needed true religion most. Finally, Jesus uses his authority as the Messiah to defend his ministry. He says there in verse number 13, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. His ministry was not to the righteous, good people of the world. Jesus came to call the sinners to repentance. That means that only sinners are called. So that means that if you're not a sinner, you won't be called. Jesus was using the Pharisees' standard of righteousness here to explain to them that according to their thinking, He had not come for them. He had come for the very people they rejected. For the people from whom the Pharisees distinguished themselves and separated. Now, now based on the Scriptures, that was based on the, 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 the Jesus using the Pharisees' uh, standards there, but based on the Scriptural standards, both in the Old Testament and the New, we read that all have sinned. No one is righteous. No one does good and all are under sin. So Jesus was also telling them here that if you don't recognize that you're a sinner, you won't see your need for a Savior. These Pharisees had become righteous in their own eyes based on their impressive yet imperfect adherence to the law. So writer Grant Osborne uh, paraphrased Jesus' words like this, I have not come for those who believe they are healthy, but for those who know they are sick. So, there are three, at least three ways that I want to show you that we, res- that we can respond to this story. Jesus told the Pharisees here to go and learn what this means. So, let me show you three responses that we should have after watching Jesus' work and after listening to what He said and understanding what He meant. Number one, when we understand what Jesus said, it will result in thankfulness towards God. Think about it. We sang about it. God showed us mercy. That's incredible compassion and grace to rescue a sinner like me. Scripture teaches us that salvation is for sinners only. And then we qualify. If we're honest with ourselves. We all qualify. Think about who you were and still are or would be apart from Christ. You might not have been a prostitute. You might not have been a drunk or a drug dealer or a criminal. But the Bible says that you were much worse. Romans 5.10 says that we were God's enemies before Christ. Colossians 1.21 says that we were estranged or alienated from God and hostile enemies in our mind, doing that which is evil. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in trespasses. And sins. We were sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Now, by human standards, we might look pretty good. We look around the table at Matthew's kitchen and we compare ourselves to those people and we might feel like, hey, we've done a pretty good job, just as the Pharisees did. But by God's perfect standard, we deserve nothing but righteous condemnation. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, 
made us alive together in Christ. By grace we have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. E.A. Carson wrote, Our growing awareness of the magnitude of our sin can only result in the growing thankfulness for the richness of the pardon we have received. He said, when we are reminded that Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners, far from being offended, we're relieved. Jesus came to me. And I give Him thanks for that. And I give Him praise for that. That's why we take a specific time in our service, in our gatherings, to just give thanks and praise. And I'm not asking for anything, God. I'm saying thank You for all that You've done. And it ought not be something that we do once a week on a Sunday morning, but something that we do on a regular basis as we read the Scriptures and we read about what we are and as we we listen to Christian music and it reminds us of who we are. Or when we fall into sin and it reminds us of what we still are, we turn to God and say, and you still love me? Not in me. Because of you. Results in thankfulness. Number two, understanding what Jesus said will result in humility towards others. Again, when I think back to who I am and what I am, when I take a long, honest look in the mirror of truth, I don't walk away proud of what I've seen. I don't walk away thinking, I'm all that. I walk away amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me, a sinner, condemned. I realize that I'm not better than any other sinner out there. And though my sin is different from those who sat at Matthew's table, I am no different than they are. We are, as Carson wrote, never more than poor beggars telling others where there is bread. Jeremiah says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Finally, number three, when we understand what Jesus said, it will result in hope in the Gospel. Yes, salvation is for sinners. Jesus forgives sinners. That means that there are none too far from God to be reached by Christ. Though no one is worthy of salvation, no one is disqualified by sin either. With that knowledge then, we as believers can confidently go and tell anyone and everyone truly good news that only Jesus forgives, that Jesus can forgive, and that He does forgive sins. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience and is an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. Christian, we can pray 
for our friends and our family members who do not know Christ. And we can be confident knowing that as long as they are alive on this earth, there is still hope. There is hope that they can be forgiven. But we can also do more than pray. We can tell. We can share the story that Jesus saves sinners. And in this passage, we see that Jesus not only eats with sinners, He spends time with them, He loves them, but He calls them to repentance and to discipleship. Jesus wants sinners to follow Him. He didn't come for perfect people. He doesn't call the righteous people to follow Him because there aren't any. He wants the broken. He wants the rejected and the outcast. He calls the demon-possessed, those who were given up by society. He calls tax collectors and sinners like Matthew, whom the good people want nothing to do with. He calls the immoral and the unclean and the sinful to come to Him and find healing, mercy, and hope. And He still calls today. He calls today to people who recognize within them an unworthiness and inability to help themselves. But they come to Him, warts and all, in brokenness and sin, but also in faith and repentance. And there at the table, they find acceptance. They find hope. John MacArthur wrote, the Gospel is not for good people, but for bad people who know they are bad and who come to God for forgiveness and cleansing. Now the truth is simple. Jesus saves sinners. Question, do you know if you follow him?